Well, thanks very much, Sally, and lovely to see you this morning, everybody. My name's Ben Graham, the Minister of the Church. It's lovely to have some of our neighbours with us, uh, to have some new people with us, to have people we haven't seen for a long time with us, and to have uh, standard old regulars with us as well. <laughs> glad, you're glad you're all here. Uh, we're in the midst of a, a series called The Wondrous Cross, an extended reflection on the death of Jesus. There are some books, uh, as usual, available for you to take up the back. One's gone already this morning, which is fa fantastic. They're there for you to take seriously. Just take them, read them, give them away. Uh, thinking about the cross, um, we've been thinking about some big topics and some big truths. Making the Most of, a, of the Cross by John Chapman is a, a short and simple read that's doing what we're doing in this series, reflecting on the different aspects of the cross. I would encourage you, there's four copies of this left. This would make a great kind of family read around the dinner table after dinner, um, which is always, you know, a good idea. And the reality is sometimes challenging. But for instance, let me just say, like the one that we're thinking about today, Jesus' death brings forgiveness and cleansing. It's like two and a half pages, three minutes maybe. Be a great reflection for a family around the dinner table or with someone maybe who's new to Christianity or something like that. Anyway, there's a little plug for you. Uh, the reason we're doing this, the plan was that after Easter, we wanted to, to not move on so quickly from the death and resurrection of Jesus, but to stay still, to stay at the cross together for another couple of months in this kind of slow and deliberate and extended way to reflect on what the cross achieves um, for those who would trust and follow Jesus. When we stand together at the foot of the cross, looking at what the Bible teaches about some of the different facets of the cross, we do so thoroughly convinced that the cross is at the very centre of all of God's plans and purposes for his world, we're thoroughly convinced that the cross is at the very centre of history. We're thoroughly convinced that the cross is the centre of the Christian life. And so it's the place from which we live and the place from which we work and the place from which we minister the gospel to the nations and to our neighbours and to the next generation. The cross gives us the content and the character of our life and our work and our ministry. The cross gives us the substance as well as the shape of the, Christ the Christian life. Uh, I think it was the late Jim Packer who used the illustration of a diamond with its multiple faces or facets. You shine the light through a different face to add to, to, to see the beauty of the diamond from a different angle and so the diamond's beauty as you look through each individual facet the beauty of the diamond is just compounded the one beauty that is compounded by shining the light through a different window as it were and what i want to just emphasize this morning to you is that what we're doing is shining the light of the bible through the different windows into the cross the one thing whose beauty is compounded as we look through those different facets of what the Bible says the cross achieves. 
We wanted to highlight that for us this morning as we begin, because I think there's a danger that as we pull apart the different facets of the cross, the different things that the death of Jesus achieves for those who would trust and follow him, there's a danger in thinking that they're all just separate things, uh, that you can kind of take one and leave the other, as it were. Uh, I want us to see that these are all just different ways of looking at the same event. Um, we want to remember, especially the last three weeks, is kind of an extended sermon that's continued. Thankfully, we've had a break of six days between each bit. Uh, but we wanted to see that Jesus died as our representative and our substitute. He died in our place to turn aside God's wrath and to take away our sin in order to bring us back to God. That's our eight weeks. Those three sentences. That Jesus died as our representative substitute in our place to turn aside God's wrath, to take away our sin, in order to bring us back to God. We're spending eight weeks unpacking those three sentences, basically. Uh, we're teasing that out. We're shining the light of the gospel through the different windows of the cross. Last week... We thought about the word propitiation, right? The word that means that God's wrath, his just and holy anger at sin has been turned aside from us at the cross. And this week our fancy word is expiation. Uh, that is that our sin is removed and our conscience cleared by the cross of Christ. Uh, David Wells summarises these two ideas very succinctly in this quote that you'll see up on the screen. He writes that man is alienated from God by sin and God is alienated from man by wrath. It's the substitutionary death of Christ, it's in the substitutionary death of Christ that sin is overcome and wrath averted so that God can look on man without displeasure and man can look on God without fear. Sin is expiated. God is propitiated. Uh, that summary sentence, or sentences, uh, I think captures what it is that we've been reflecting on these last few weeks. Two weeks ago, the substitutionary death of Christ, last week, wrath averted so that God can look on us without displeasure. This week, sin is overcome so that we can look on God without fear. Sin is overcome so that we can look on God without fear. Our sin is expiated. It's taken away to clear our conscience that we might boldly and permanently and humbly look on God and serve him without fear. God doesn't propitiate his anger, he doesn't turn it aside from us only to leave us in our sin and under the burden of our wrongdoing. And he turns aside his just anger and he takes away our sin. Uh, this is the verse that was one of the verses that Sally just read for us in Hebrews chapter 9 verse 14 that you'll see up on the screen. How much more, then, will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death, so that we may serve the living God? 
basically what I want to do for us this morning is just to sit in that verse together and to see the different aspects of what it says about Jesus' death on the cross taking away our sin. So the next slide, Levi, gives us these three points. That's my sermon. How much more will the blood of Christ? First point. Second point, cleanse our consciences. Third point, that we may serve the living God. That's the three points that I wanted to make. And first then, how much more will the blood of Christ and that, that comparison that the writer to the Hebrews is making comes from the Old Covenant. Uh, reflecting on what it is that God had had his people do for hundreds and hundreds of years since he rescued them out of slavery in Egypt and made, him, made them his redeemed people and wanted to symbolically and really kind of dwell among them and have a relationship with them, he set up this old covenant, this way of operating before God and relating to him through a tabernacle, through a, a temple, through a sacrificial system. And so part of the very fabric of the life of God's chosen and rescued people uh, were all these reminders of the way that God wanted to relate to them. And so in Hebrews chapter 9, talking about the fact that inside the temple, the tabernacle, you have these, these reminders of God's provision in the manner that came down from heaven. You have the reminders of God's um, requirements for his people in the tablets of the Ten Commandments. You have a reminder of that God requires a sacrifice for sin in the mercy seat, in the place where blood needed to be spattered and sacrifices made. Requirements built into the very heart of the life of the people of Israel, reminding them of God's grace, his rescue, his desire for them to know him and to be with him, to be restored in their relationship with him. And yet reminders that there was a distance still. And so the, the writer of the Hebrews reminds us that when you go into the, the tabernacle, you have these um, different areas that only certain people are allowed to go into with curtains that block access. And you have the holy of holies that no one's allowed to go into except the high priest and only once a year. That's cut off by this gigantic curtain that says, God wants you to come close, but your sin creates a barrier. That means that there is distance between you and God. And so day after day, week after week, year after year, God's people are reminded that their sin creates a barrier between them and God, that they need his forgiveness and in order to be forgiven by God, in order to have your relationship reconciled with your heavenly Father, a sacrifice is required. Blood needs to be spilled. In fact, blood is not just spilled, it's smeared, it's sprinkled, it's flung. Almost every step of the way in the sacrificial system, you need some more blood reminded in a very visible and a very vis visceral way that sin requires sacrifice in order for forgiveness to be made possible. Blood and blood and blood and blood. And when the high priest goes into the most holy place, never without blood, the writer says, 
He does so fearfully, knowing that it's a terrifying thing for a sinful person to come into the presence of the holy God. So what would they do to the high priest on the Day of Atonement when he would go into the Holy of Holies? What happens if he has a heart attack in there? And we can't get him back. And he's stuck in there. We don't have a high priest. What do we ever do? So every year when the high priest goes in, just in case he has a heart attack, they tie a rope around him so they can pull him out if he happens to cark it while he's in the Holy of Holies. Right? It's a serious thing. It's a fearful thing to go into the presence of a holy God as a sinful person. And so this high priest making sacrifices year after year, but year after year as he makes the sacrifice, the curtain remains. The fear is maintained. The distance is merely highlighted. The writer of the Hebrews says that these sacrifices made year after year were an illustration for the present time, indicating that the gifts and the sacrifices being offered were not able to clear the conscience of the worshipper. Year after year, day after day, these sacrifices were made so that they might be outwardly and ceremonially clean. But the sacrifice of a bull or a goat, the blood of an animal shed in your place, could never clear the conscience, the inside reality that you had fallen short of God's glory, the inside kind of moral compass that reminds you that you are guilty. It reminds you that you have fallen short of God's glory and you have offended his righteousness. Our consciences are there, given to us by God, in order that we might be aware of our sin, in order that we might be aware of what is right and wrong, and that we might be driven towards him for forgiveness and cleansing. But if it's merely your outward body that is washed by the bloods of bulls and goats, and your conscience is still defiled, the curtain needs to remain because you cannot draw near to God with any sort of confidence. Another cleansing is required. I don't know if you've seen um, this COVID hand-washing sign. I don't know if you can even read that. There's lots of different options for COVID hand-washing signs. There's Say the Lord's Prayer. I don't see that in many restaurants. Um, there's Sing Happy Birthday While You Wash Your Hands. I like this one because it's uh, while you wash your hands, you recite Lady Macbeth talking about trying to wash the guilt of murder off her hands. Will these hands never be clean, she says. She can still smell the blood of the murder that she has committed. Out, damned spot, out says Lady Macbeth. All the perfumes of Arabia will not sweeten this little hand. The soap 
does not get rid of the guilt, the blood that is on her hands. The outward hand washing cannot cleanse the guilt of the heart. And that's the picture that we have in Hebrews 9 about the reality of Old Testament sacrifices. The outward sacrifice of, a blo- of the blood of bulls and goats can maybe make you ceremonially clean, but they cannot clear your conscience once and for all. A permanent sacrifice, a greater cleansing, is what's required. How much more then will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself unblemished to God, cleanse our consciences from acts that lead to death so that we may serve the living God? For the Old Testament believer coming to the temple every year on the Day of Atonement and having the sacrifice made by the high priest dealing with your sins for the previous 364 days must have been a moment of great relief. As the burden's lifted, you are outwardly clean, you can have a restored relationship with God and then you stub your toe on the way out of the temple and you swear or you accidentally steal something, or you lie, and you haven't even left the temple yet, and you've got to wait a whole another 365 days until there's another day of atonement, until there's another sacrifice. It's like when you wash your car, and you have that split second of, finally, it's clean. And the birds say, oh, really? Not so with the blood of Jesus, who shed his blood once and for all time to cleanse not our outward bodies, but the consciences of our hearts in order that we might be relieved from the guilt and the burden and the stain of our sin in order that the temple curtain might be torn down once and forever. Isn't that what Jesus says on the cross when he sheds his blood? He doesn't say, I'll see you again next year. He doesn't say, well, that will do for a little bit. He says, it is finished. And as he declares from the cross that his sacrifice for sin once and for all time is completed, the temple curtain is torn in two from top to bottom. No longer do you approach God with fear and trepidation. No longer is your sin a reminder of distance and barrier between you and God. No, we have confidence, Hebrews 10 says, to enter the most holy place. Not just one of us, Not just the high priest with a rope around his waist, but all of us now can come flooding in to the most holy place in the presence of God himself. 
not through the sacrifice of bulls and goats, but through the blood of Jesus, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience, having our bodies washed with pure water, that we might come with sincerity and with confidence into the very presence of God, not confident in ourselves and our own ability to deal with our sin, but confidence in the blood of Jesus, who has turned aside God's wrath and who has taken away our sin, removed the guilty conscience from us. You know you're meant to feel appropriate levels of guilt when you've done the wrong thing. That's a good and a right thing. Lady Macbeth thought that she could, she could murder and feel nothing. But the reality is, when you kill someone and you don't feel guilty, well, then you're a psychopath. Right? When you do the wrong thing and you feel guilty for it, well, that's a sign of your humanity. That's a sign of the fact that God has given you a conscience that you might know what is right and wrong. We're told in our, in our culture that it's wrong for us to feel guilty. It's wrong for us to feel shame. We shift the blame to our parents and we shift the blame to our culture. But when we've done the wrong thing, when we fail to do the right thing, we're meant to feel alienated. We're meant to feel guilty. We're meant to feel burdened. Your conscience is meant to remind you of the danger of sin and the holiness of God. But the blood of Jesus is meant to remind you that you don't need to live with that burden. You don't need to live with that guilt. You don't need to live with that shame, but you can bring it to Jesus and to lay it on him at the cross. And the Bible's great promise is that when God forgives, he forgets. That when God forgives, he actually forgives. He takes the guilt of your sin and he removes it as far as the east is from the west, so far has he forgiven our sins and remembered them no more. When your conscience highlights your sin, it's God giving you the fight or flight response that you're meant to have in the face of right and wrong. And you're meant to flee to him, repenting of your sin and throwing yourself on his mercy, trusting in the blood of Jesus to forgive and to cleanse and to remove your guilt. But when your conscience is too sensitive, when you struggle to let go of your sin, knowing that God has forgiven you, but you can't forgive yourself, the cross of Christ reminds us that we need to run to Jesus and that his sacrifice for sin was once and for all time, that he has taken your guilt that he has cleansed your conscience and so you can forgive yourself. This past Wednesday, we had a, a lovely service of morning prayer on Wednesday morning here at 7.30 in the morning. 
which we do every fortnight. And in our service of morning prayer, after we um, prayed a prayer of forgiveness with sincerity and confidence, because Jesus had died for us, this is the declaration of forgiveness that we had in the prayer book. Thanks, Levi. This was the prayer after confessing our sins. Merciful Lord, grant to your faithful people pardon and peace that they may be cleansed from all their sins and serve you with a quiet mind. Isn't that a lovely prayer? That's the picture of a conscience that's been cleansed by the blood of Jesus. Serving God with a quiet mind. Not constantly going over your fears and failures. Not constantly rehashing the sins of the past and the guilt that you feel for all the things that you've failed to do or the things that you have done that aren't right. But serving God with a quiet mind, knowing that the blood of Jesus cleanses you from all your sin. That you might be free to let go of those things that God has forgiven you of. It is finished. There's no more sacrifice for sin. There's nothing more that you need to do in order that you might boldly approach the throne of grace. All too often I see Christians who live the Christian life driven by their own guilt and feeling like they need to make up for their own failures. Knowing theoretically and intellectually that Jesus has forgiven them and that the cross of Christ means that their conscience is clear. But feeling like they need to make up for their failures by the service that they give to him. Driven by guilt instead of being driven by grace. You don't need to serve God in order to be free from your sin. You get to serve God because you are free from your sin by the blood of Jesus shed once and for all. Jesus said it is finished. Will you trust that that is true and allow him to take the guilt of your sin to cleanse you from all unrighteousness in order that you might serve him with freedom, the freedom of forgiveness. Hebrews chapter 10 says this, Therefore, brothers and sisters, since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way open for us through the curtain that is his body, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart and with the full assurance that faith brings, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water, let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Let's pray together. 
Our Father, we thank you so much for the blood of Jesus that sets aside your just judgment for sin and also removes our guilt and cleanses our conscience. Merciful Lord, grant to your faithful people pardon and peace that they may be cleansed from all their sins and serve you with a quiet mind. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.